You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. We're currently in a series called The Church, who God has called and created us to be. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. Let me just give you a little bit of reference as far as where, where we are at as a church, right? So like I said, we're, we're fairly young, um, and what we've been endeavoring to do as a church in terms of the, the preaching ministry is come to some consensus based on the scriptures as to, as to sort of who we are, right? Um, not, not only who we are individually in light of the gospel, meaning this is what Jesus, uh, uh, this is who he says he is, and this is uh, what he says he has done, and so if we're Christians, that's what this means for us, but we also want to delve into what it then means for us to be a people that have been purchased by Jesus for uh, the Lord's sake. And so what we've been doing really over the last, I guess, eight or nine weeks or so is walking through a sermon series that we've entitled The Church. And um, so not a very creative title. That should give you some hints about Sojourn. But, um, but we've really just been endeavoring to discover from the Scripture who, who is the church and, and, and really what, what is it that she should um, do in light of the scriptures? And so we've spent, if you, like if you haven't been here, just know uh, we're, we're, we're arriving to the conclusion of that. And so if you need sort of all of the background work that we've already done, uh, those are posted online for you to hear and listen to. I would encourage you to engage with them. But um, where we are now is we, we're looking at sort of specific things that the church does that often, often she's sort of characterized or identified by um, and, and sort of what we want to do is, is flip that on its head and begin to understand, like, number one, this is who we are. Number two, then this is what we should do in obedience to our new identity. And so we've talked about preaching the Word of God, right? We've, we've given a good reason for why we should gather and, and do this together on Sundays. We've talked about making disciples, what that means for us as a church. We've talked about how we together are a people who have been bound together in Jesus for the sake of Jesus. So together we're going to journey towards him like that 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 the christian life is not so much an individual individualistic type of belief set as it is that we've been saved individually but we've been saved into a community um, and so we've talked about how that plays itself out in our common pursuit of holiness um, and we've talked about all kinds of uh, other things as well but today we're going to be talking about the sacraments um, and so the sermon is entitled observe uh, the sacraments the church of christ observes the sacraments um, now before we even get started, I recognize that that, that word for us, uh, depending on what your background is, could conjure one, either fear, or two, a question mark. And so uh, let me just explain to you what I mean by, by sacrament. Probably the most, the most commonly known word that you could equate it with would be uh, like a rite, a rite of passage or, or a ritual, right? That's what we, we mean when we talk about a sacrament. So we're going to look at what are these rituals or what are these rites that the church should practice, why should they practice them, and how, right? So th- that's what we want to begin to discover, um, if, if there even are any. And obviously, uh, according to the sermon, you'll, you'll notice that we do believe there are some. So um, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, this idea of the Lord's Supper, this practice, this ritual, this rite of uh, the Lord's Supper. And so if, you'll, uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke. That's where we're going to park for a little bit. Um, but in order for us to understand what's happening here in Luke, let me just give you some, let me give you some context as to where you're at in the scriptures. Okay. Um, 
For those of you that maybe are not familiar with the Bible, the, the book of Luke is, is essentially just a, a chronicle of Jesus's life and ministry. I mean, it's, it's very simple. So it tells us about his birth. It tells us about his ministry to uh, the people in, in Galilee and the surrounding area. It tells us about miracles that he's done and teachings that he's delivered and all of, all of these things. And you're really, in this particular portion of Luke, you're coming to the, to the end of, the, of this chronicle. So Jesus is actually about to be, uh, be crucified. Um, and this is sort of his, his night, his final night um, with his disciples. Um, and that's where we arrive at in, in the context of Jesus' life in ministry. He's, he's now been alive for approximately 33 years, three of which we have a, a lot of information about, the prior 30, which we don't have a ton of information about. But um, this is where we arrive, and this is what the Lord, um, Jesus, would, would tell them to do um, in light of what's about to happen. And so this is, this is how it goes down. When the hour came, he reclined at table. So this is Jesus. And the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now let's just stop there very quickly. There's, there's something we have to do even a little bit more work now to understand what it is that, that, these, uh, that these men are about to celebrate. Right, so, so what happens is Jesus, Jesus knows that, that he's a, a, about to die. He gathers his disciples together and he says, look, I've, I've longed to celebrate this, this meal with you. Now, uh, to give you some context, the, the nation of Israel or you know, the Jewish people for, have, have a pretty long history, right? Like that's, that's really what most of the Old Testament, all of the books before Jesus are about. It's about this people, um, the, the people of God, um, Israel. And what he is referencing here is a particular instance in Israel's history. So let me just, it, it, I'm not going to go to great lengths to explain this, but if you want um, the reference for this, like where this happens, is in Exodus chapter tw- chapters 12 and chapters 13. So if you want to read that on your own time, I would, I would highly encourage it. I think it'll do nothing but serve to greater help you understand what it is that that is happening here at this moment in text. But let me summarize really quickly. Essentially, at, in Exodus, right, uh, there is a, this is a moment in which the people of Israel have been living in captivity in Egypt for uh, approximately 400 years. That's a, a long time, right? The United States of America has not existed for that long. They're just a frame of reference, right? So the nation of Israel has been living in captivity in Egypt for approximately 400 plus years. And what God does is he sends a man named Moses. And if, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you probably have some understanding of who that is. But he sends Moses to liberate his people. Right? So if you know anything about Moses, he's not the most spectacular guy in the world. He's, he's, uh, he's kind of weak with speaking. He's got what some would believe is some sort of stutter or a speech impediment. Um, and he's also a murderer. So, um, so God says, look, uh, Moses, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you even though you're weak. I'm going to use you to deliver to Pharaoh this message. And, and Pharaoh is the, the leader of this Egyptian, what is really an empire at this time, the, sort of the foremost nation at this, at this point and period in human history. And he says, look, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him to let my people go. And Moses, not, not the most willing guy, ends up going eventually, right? There's some argument back and forth between him and God as to whether he feels like he's the right man for the job. But Moses eventually ends up going and, and Pharaoh says, you know what? I have no reason to listen to you. I lead the most prestigious nation empire on the face of the planet. You are an Israelite, a slave to our people. And 
really inconsequential in more ways than one. And yet, what the Lord tells Moses to, to say to Pharaoh is, look, if you, if you choose not to comply, there, there are going to be plagues which are delivered. And I'm not going to walk through each and every single one, but ultimately, number 10 was probably the most heinous, the most unsettling, the most uncomfortable plague um, of them all. And, and that was that, look, if Pharaoh did not let the people of God go, that, that an angel of the Lord would actually come and would take the life of each firstborn male in that nation. Every single one of them. And that, that's what was going to happen. And so, you, you, you know, you kind of have to ask yourself, well, what about, what about the, the people of Israel? Like, they're, they're in, they're a part of this nation, they've, they've been a part of it for 400 years, so does that include them as well? Well, um, this is where we get the term Passover. Because what the Lord then did is he gave instructions to his people and he said, look, this plague is going to come to pass. Right? Like, like what I have decreed, what I've said would happen, will happen. But for you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do this thing in preparation. And what he, what he does is he asks his people, these Israelites, these what we would call Jews, um, he tells them, look, you're going to take a lamb or a goat. And, and not like the sick one over in the corner, but like you're going to take your best one, one that you would eat. And, and what you're going to do is you're actually going to, to, to kill it. And when you kill it, what you're going to do, and I know this is sounding weird, so just relax, we'll get there. Um, you're going to kill it, and then what you're going to do is you're going to take that lamb's blood, and you're going to smear it on your doorposts. And in that moment, what will then happen is the angel of the Lord that is coming for each firstborn will actually pass over your house because of the blood of the lamb. And so the, the feast that they are about to celebrate um, in, in Exodus, uh, the, the Lord tells them to continue to celebrate that, to commem- commemorate that moment when the Israelites, the, the people, were released from the reign and rule of Egypt and into uh, the, the, the glorious reign and rule of God. And so this is the feast that, that they are about to sort of honor, right? They're looking back to that moment in their nation's history and they're, and they're calling upon God's faithfulness in that moment. Like that's what they're about to, about to celebrate. And Jesus has celebrated this feast now for approximately 33 years. But this is what he says next. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he's predicting his, his own death. And then he says this, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is saying is, look, this, this feast that I've enjoyed for 33 years, this feast that we've enjoyed together for the past probably three years or so, this is my last one. This is my last one before I suffer. And then it says this, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So here's, here's what's happening in this moment, right? Um, this is the moment that the Lord's Supper is, is born. This is, this is the moment in which we take a, 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 an incredible turn 
in that for thousands of years, the people of God have celebrated the Passover, but now something is happening in this moment that will go on to birth what we, what we call the Lord's Supper. Like that Jesus in this moment institutes what we call the Lord's Supper. But let us notice a couple of things that are happening in this moment with regards to this Lord's Supper. Number one, what Jesus is communicating is incredibly significant. Because what, what, what Jesus is doing is he is saying, look, the, the promises of God to the people of Israel, those are fulfilled in me. And, and in that moment, when, when I passed over the sons of Israel and took the sons of Egypt, in the same way, in my name, in my blood, you will find refuge. Your sins will be passed over because of my sacrifice. And so he's saying, look, you're, this, this was the old way, but I am the new way. I am the cup of the new covenant, and it's in my blood in which your salvation is sealed. Your sins will be passed over. They will be looked over because of me, because of what I am about to go and do on your behalf. And so what, what Jesus is doing is something incredibly extraordinary in that he is linking himself as the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy and history. And in that moment, he's saying, I am the culmination of all of these things. And in me and in this covenant is final and full payment for the sins of all who would call upon my name for salvation. That's, that's what's happening in this moment. And so there's, there's really three, three elements that we have to understand when we begin to look at the Lord's Supper and then sort of why we, why we celebrate it, right? Like there's, there's some of the history that we have, but let's go in and talk about, you know, why should we do it? Well, this, this, this is not going to take long to answer. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So when Jesus says something, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, the logical conclusion of that would be that we do what he says. But then when we go on to talk about sort of what is it that makes this significant for the people of God? I think there's, there's three elements um, that, we, that we see or that we recognize or that we should recognize and experience when we partake of the Lord's Supper if we're believers. And that is that what Jesus is doing here is he is reminding his people of the faithfulness of God. Like that what he said would happen has happened and then it's come to its direct, direct and fulfillment complete fulfillment in Jesus. So he's, he's, he's taking us to the past and he's saying, look, I'm faithful here. But he's also reminding us that in the present, he's faithful in that moment that he says, look, this is going to be my last one. I'm going to go on your behalf. That in this present moment, I am faithful to the degree that I'm going to establish a new covenant in my blood. And there's nothing that can or will stop that. But there's something exceedingly more joyful, I think, than even those two wondrous things in what Jesus is saying here. Because he says this, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So listen, listen to what Jesus is saying, right? He says, look, I, this, is, this is my last Passover meal. My last Passover meal until the kingdom of God. And so what we have in this is a promise of his future return. Like a promise that will come to pass. Because when we look at all that he's done up until the present, 
It's that he's been faithful in everything that he does. And so if he says he will return with his kingdom, if he says that he is going to make a place for us and that one day we will gather with him and feast in his presence, that we'll enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is what Revelation is all about, that it's that promise that we also look forward to. So look, when the, when the Christian takes communion, let me, let, let me just sort of draw you into this story. Like that's, that's, what, that's what communion really is, is all about. The Lord's Supper is that we would go to this table, that we, we would remember that God has always been faithful in the past, that we would recognize that he is faithful to us in the present by passing over our sins because of the righteousness of Jesus, and that we would look forward to the day when Jesus will return because what he decrees comes to pass. That's what, that's what communion is all about. So I think there's a, there's a couple of things that we need to understand now about sort of um, what that then means or translates into. Because here's the thing, um, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, I think the temptation is equally great for us to look at a ritual and say, if I just do that enough times, then God will be pleased with me, right? So you, so you go to the table, you take the bread, you eat it, you do the whatever you got to do, you know, kind of thing. And, and you imagine that in that moment, perhaps you're building up good credit in, in sort of your bank account with God. Right? So we, we have a tendency, a desire to lean on what we can do for God rather than rest in what it is that God has done for us in Jesus, which is really what communion or the Lord's Supper is calling us to do. So let me just say this. Look, um, communion is not like renewing a driver's license, right? I mean, it's not like, okay, I just got, I got to go do it so that Jesus knows I'm still on his side and then we can, I can go about sort of my own thing until the next time I have to renew it, right? And look, there's, there's no amount of bread and grape juice that will like heal your soul, okay? Just, and if you've tasted it, you're like, yeah, I know. Um, but but look, it's, so it's not so much about the action itself in terms of being able to, to build up any kind of righteousness, but it is absolutely about remembering the faithfulness of God through the ages and his faithfulness to save you and his faithfulness to deliver you into his presence, finally, fully into the peaceful, loving, gracious reign and rule of Jesus. That's what we celebrate when we take communion. And so what we need to understand about that then is, is that, is it important? Absolutely. Jesus commanded us to do it. It's powerful, ripe ripe with imagery and significance for the believer. But is it that important? Meaning, meaning if, if you become a Christian in the next two minutes and then fall down dead, but you never took communion, will, will God shun you? No, that's not the case. Right? So salvation is by grace alone, right? Through faith alone, not of works, so that none can boast. But our joyful, obedient response is to take of the Lord's Supper and rejoice in what it is that the Lord has done, is doing, and will complete. And so let me just speak really quickly to, um, to those of us in the room that maybe are struggling with belief or maybe we, we don't know if we're, we're Christians yet. Look, um, there's a couple of things that we say every week. Um, and, and so I, I want you to understand the significance of those. Um, that we, we say this, um, 
And this is, let me talk to the believers first. Therefore, we proclaim our faith is signed and sealed in this sacrament. And then we say, and then we say these three things together. We say, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And so in that moment, we do just like Jesus did. And we say, we look to the past. Christ died for us. We look to the present. He is risen right here, right now. And Christ will come again. He is coming and he is faithful to do that which he says he will do. That's the significance of that moment. So I would hope that you, along with me, would shout those words with great confidence. Not, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again but that like Christ has died, Christ is risen, and he will come again. There's hope in that statement, beauty, wonder in that statement. In fact, if you are a Christian, you have staked your entire life on that statement. So say it like you believe it. And if you're not a Christian in the room, there's something else that we always say, and we say this, um, if you have yet to place your faith in Christ, we humbly ask that you would refrain from partaking because or out of respect for the significance of this sacrament for the church. That's what, we, that's what we ask you to do if you're not a Christian in the room. And look, let me, let me just say a couple of things so that we're very clear. That is not to be divisive. And it is absolutely also not some sort of secret ninja way to discover who in the room is not a Christian. It has nothing to do with that. Look, we, we have always desired that sojourn would be a place in which those who do not believe can come and ask legitimate questions, can come and sit underneath good Bible teaching in hopes that you would be able to either take hold of Christianity or throw it aside based on what it actually is and not how it's often misrepresented in the world today. Like that's what, that's what we want. Okay, and so, so my respect for you, if you sit down during the, during the communion, is infinitely higher than if you were just to get up and sort of follow the crowd because you felt like you couldn't belong here without doing that. Because it's just not true. If you, if you are struggling with doubt, if you are not a believer in this room, look, we're, we're here. We're here to first and foremost worship God, but, but secondly also to share his righteousness and goodness with those who don't believe. And I want you to experience that in its fullness. And I don't want you at all ever to confuse the good news of the gospel of grace with a ritual in which if you don't believe in Jesus, there's no significance. It's just bread. It's just grape juice. All right, so uh, let's jump into to baptism now. So I'll pull the e-brake and... Uh, We'll move on to the next point. Uh, Romans chapter 6. All right, so you're, you're probably wondering to yourself at this point, all right, so we saw Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Why are we going to the book of Romans, which is written after Jesus is dead, in order to, to gain an understanding of baptism? Well, there, there's a couple of reasons for that. So let me just explain it briefly. Number one, I think in this text, we'll see most clearly what it is that's happening during the act of baptism in terms of its symbolism. But then I think also um, a couple of weeks, excuse me, a couple of weeks ago, we were in Matthew 28, verse 18. And in that, again, we see Jesus instituting baptism as a sacrament or a rite or ritual that the church should uphold when he said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And so let's just, I'll just sort of 
you know, maneuver it that way and that we see Jesus instituted there. He clearly commands it there. So our, our why, again, is completely and totally wrapped up in the fact that that's just what Jesus told us to do. But then I think we'll begin to see the significance and the symbolism from Romans chapter 6. So this is what Romans 6 says, verses 3 and 4, and I'm actually going to read 5 as well. Um, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So here's, here's what's happening, right? Uh, again, Paul is explaining for us what it, what it means, what happens when we're baptized. He's, re, he's trying to remind these people in Rome, look, this, this is your identity, and your identity has been sealed outwardly in this sign that, that you've given through baptism. And this is what this means for you. And he's going to go on after that to exhort them to live in light of that identity. But look, here's, here's what the, the scriptures often tell us. Right? So if you read the, the whole first chapter of Ephesians, it talks about how we as believers, those who have called upon the name of Jesus for salvation, that we are also in Christ. And I know that, that sounds weird because uh, Christ is risen, but he's not sort of physically here and not tangible. So I don't know, how does it work for us to sort of be in one another? Right? But, but really what that comes down to ultimately is that, is that in Jesus, we have his righteousness, right? So the Bible tells us that he clothed us with his righteousness. So in him, we have that. The Bible also tells us that in him, we receive adoption as sons and daughters, right? So because we're in Christ, God looks upon us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You are an adopted son, a co-heir to, to, the, uh, to the kingdom, right? All of those things that we're joined together with Christ in some sort of weird, weird way that, you know, as much as I would like to expound or explain more, I don't know that there's biblical warrant to do so. But that we are, but that we are in Christ. And Paul goes on to explain that in these verses, in that we begin to understand what it means for us when we're baptized. So, so this is what happens when, when we baptize someone at Sojourn, right? We, uh, we say a few words, we, we ask them to give their testimony, meaning their um, sort of what has happened in their life. Like, so this was me before Jesus, then Jesus rescued me, and this is now my, my new life, my, my hope to live uh, into a community of people who are together striving for holiness in the eyes of God. Right? We, we ask them to do that, and then what we say is this, um, we baptize you, our brother or our sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're baptized um, in the likeness of Jesus' death, and we're raised to walk in the newness of life. So what we are signifying in that moment is this. Uh, 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 5. I could be wrong on that, so don't quote me. But 1 Corinthians tells us right, that, that um, when we receive Jesus, that we are actually enabled by the power of the Spirit to put away the old self and to take up the new self. Like that there's something wondrous in that moment that someone who was dead is now alive in Christ. Like that's Ephesians, right? That what was dark has now been made light. And so when, when we baptize people, what we're saying is, look, 
uh, our hope again is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because in that work of Christ, our old self has been put to death and we've been made alive as new men and women. We are, we are made as new creatures, creatures who no longer value the things that the world values and place great value on that which Jesus values, his righteousness and holiness and the, the name and the renown of his father. Like that that's what's happening in baptism, that we are saying, look, this is an outward symbol of that which has transpired in my life, that I was dead and I was buried with Jesus and I've been made alive because of his good work on my behalf. And so again, I think there's something that we have to to take from this understanding, right? Just like, just like, uh, the Lord's Supper, when we talk about baptism, what we're, what we're talking about is a, an outward symbol of something that has transpired really and truly in the life of the believer. And so when, when we come to, come to the conclusion or the question about, well, okay, so do I have to be baptized to be a Christian or to follow Jesus? Well, well the answer in short form is no, but in long form would be, look, you've you, you, if you are a Christian tomorrow and, and you die in, you know, in, in two minutes later and you weren't baptized, like, is, is the Lord going to shun you? No, absolutely not. But again, we've been called to obey Jesus. And so when Jesus says you should be baptized, and that's why. Now, here's what I would say about, about both of these. Um, when, when we talk about uh, participating in the Lord's Supper, when we talk about um, baptism, right? Both, both of those are rites or rituals or what we would call sacraments um, that we believe are important for the church for, for several different reasons, which I'll, I'll get to in a second. But what I, what I want us to, sh- to understand even just now, just from a, sort of a baseline level, is although, right? So here, here's essentially what's happening. What's happening is that we're saying, I'm saying at the same time, this is incredibly important and the church should celebrate it, but then I'm also saying it's not important in that it is not going to purchase for you salvation because Jesus did that with his blood, okay? So what we're saying is this is absolutely important in that we believe that as beneficiaries of Jesus's grace, we should obey him when he says to do things in remembrance of him, when he says to be baptized in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection. But ultimately what this all comes down to is that you and I, um, if, if you're a Christian in the room, you know this, we are, we are forgetful people right? I mean, I can think of probably more than 10 decisions even this morning that I've, that I've made that, that were out of step with my new identity in Christ. And so, and so when, we, when we gather together and we, we take up the bread and we dip it in the grape juice, it's not some magical, mystical thing, but it is something incredibly significant in that in that moment, I am saying my hope is in the broken body of Jesus. My hope is in the shed blood of Jesus for my righteousness, for my salvation. And I have, I have taken the benefits of that and I want to live in obedience to my new master, my new king and commander who is just but also merciful and gracious and loving. 
And that when we, when we see a brother or a sister baptized into the faith, into the fellowship, into the community of God, it's almost as though we're sort of saying like, yeah, like I'm, I'm on this team. I, I stake my life on this truth, this belief that as Jesus was buried and rose again, my old self has been buried and the new self is risen. And I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus for the glory of God and for the good of my neighbors. And so those are the things that we're celebrating in those moments. Here's what, um, here's what I would hope for us to, to do. Um, I just want to give you sort of four succinct reasons. So if you, haven't, if you haven't been listening up to this point, just listen now and you should get the gist of most of it. Everyone's like, dang it. I should have walked in right now. You know? um, but number one, we practice these sacraments because Jesus both instituted and commanded them for his people, not as a means for salvation, but as representative of the salvation secured for us by, in, and through Jesus. That's all about the gospel. It's not about what we do for God. It's all about what God has done for us. That's what these, these moments speak to. Second point, we practice these sacraments because as followers of Jesus, we seek to be obedient to his commands in grateful response to his generous gift of grace on our behalf and respond to the active agent that is Jesus' gift of new life. Third point, we practice these sacraments because it is helpful in reminding us of our identity. We are a forgetful people and these sacraments help us to remember where our hope lies. And the fourth and final point, we practice these sacraments as symbols for the world to see in order that they might recognize our allegiance to Christ and in order that they might visibly, tangibly experience a communication of God's grace to us in Jesus. Now, if you've been around Sojourn for any amount of time, you've heard that we're sort of committed to, to three things, the, the gospel of Jesus, the church of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. And hopefully what you began to discern as I read through those things is that, is that all three of those are represented in these sacraments, which is why we do them. That in them, we, as, as people, individuals redeemed by God's grace, we actually experience the truth of the gospel over and over again, that we're reminded of those things. That then also, we together as a church identify ourselves as one church. We commit to one another in saying, look, we are relying on the same grace. We're, we're, we need the same measure of Christ's broken body and blood on our behalf. We're going to strive to live together in light of this truth. And then in terms of the mission, we, again, together, not only by our words, but by our actions, give a visible demonstration of what we believe our hope is, the broken body and blood of Jesus, and the life, death, and resurrection that is found in Him and in Him alone. And so if... if the fact that Jesus said we should do it isn't enough. The fact that it serves each and every one of those purposes as well should only further instruct not only the fact that we do them, but the fact that we rejoice when we do them. Like that we respond with glad and generous hearts, that we, that we see these moments, again, not just as sheer ritual, but we see them as something that God has given us to remind us of his continued faithfulness on our behalf. 
that he has loved you eternally in Christ Jesus. And that he continues to call men and women out of darkness and into light. That he continues to take what was dead and make it alive. That he continues to draw that which was mired in darkness into light by the precious work of the cross. 